Welcome to Spies of London. If you are taking this walk in person and actually walking around Mayfair as you listen to this recording, you should start in Grosvenor Square. The Eagle Squadron's memorial is towards the centre of the square, but just on the south side, near what used to be the Millennium Hotel. From Eagle Squadrons, you can see the Millennium Hotel, which we'll mention in a second, the old American Embassy, that's the one with the big bronze eagle on the roof, and a number of other buildings, which were used by Eisenhower and other Americans in the war. So Grosvenor Square has always been associated with America. On the east side, there is the tribute to 9-11 and the Memorial Peace Garden, for that terrible event. The embassy's moved now and will become a hotel soon and is currently a building site. Even the Millennium Hotel has its own stories. The interesting thing about Mayfair is that there are no tube stations, so the nearest and best way to get to Grosvenor Square on the tube is to come into Bond Street on the Jubilee Line and then walk west and south to get to Eagle Squadrons. There are buses that will get you into Grosvenor Square as well and plenty of those along Park Lane. And I think partly because of this paucity of public transport, no tubes, very few buses, and the it's bounded on the north side by Oxford Street and on the south side by Piccadilly and on the west by Park Lane, you tend to get a natural lull in the Mayfair area. You're sort of off the beaten track in a much uh, noticeably quiet area of central London, and this really is central London, it's W1. Some people say the most expensive postcode in the world. A one-bed apartment can easily cost you a million pounds here. So it's a very grand area, a very old area of London, but not as old as you might think. And we'll be walking through Shepherd Market later on. But it has a lot of history, especially post-war history and Cold War history as well. Partly this is because its exotic location led to many embassies coming here, so you've got the Saudi Arabia embassy later in the war, the former US embassy we've just mentioned, Qatar, many others, Egypt, several others on the walk down towards Curzon Street. And its proximity to Park Lane gives a certain grandeur as well, and Hyde Park beyond. So Grosvenor Square is one of my favourite of the old squares in London. Uh, it's fabulous at every time of year. In the spring, it's, it's got the leaves coming into the trees and it really closes in on you. It's a very green area. And then in winter, the leaves disappear and the park opens out again. And if you go in autumn, you get that great British autumnal leaf carpet, which you can trudge through. And then later in the winter, it will get very crisp and clear. You get some very sunny, cold days. I've done this walk on Boxing Day and at Christmas when it's very cold but clear and sunny. And I have to say, I think a Cold War walk in particular is best done on a freezing cold, sunny day when you can see your breath as it leaves your mouth. So Eagle Squadrons is one of the many tributes to the American involvement in World War II. And you should read the plaque on the Squadron's Memorial before you leave this area. So I've set the scene for you, just to mention that this is a virtual tour, so you are not to feel guilty if you are not walking anywhere. If you are on a beach in some hot, exotic location, even better. If you were in London, um, but not wanting to travel this year, that's fine. But I've also set this up so that you can do the walk if you want to. And although I'm going to try and describe the directions, it's very likely if your sense of directions like mine, that you might take a wrong turn or two. So what I've done as well is produced public Google Maps with each of the locations marked on. So you can use Google Maps to wander around and you just line up the Google Maps list with the podcast. Easy, huh? So here we are, Grosvenor Square. Um, we'll have a little walk around here on the way to the next stop and I'll get you to walk past the old American Embassy because you can get much closer to it now that all the security paraphernalia has been taken away.
Okay, so we don't need to walk anywhere for the first stop on the tour. If you are facing Eagle Squadrons with the American Embassy on your left, you need to turn around and face the hotel that you can see through the gates ahead of you. Now, this used to be the Copthorne Millennium Hotel, but it's now being refurbished, partly as a result of the Americans moving out and the luxury hotel going into that building, but also, no doubt, partly because of our first story. And if you know anything about recent history, now, this is a Cold War walk, my contention will be that the Cold War never ended, but recent history, going back to 2006, you might remember the case of Alexander Litvinenko. Litvinenko was a dissident who settled in London and worked with his friends, including the billionaire oligarch Boris Berezovsky, to investigate and expose what he saw as contentious behaviours by the Russian government. Although Litvinenko had been in London for many years, in October 2006 he became a full British citizen with a British passport, and he was heard to boast to friends that now he had a British passport and was effectively or legally British, the KGB would not dare to try and kill him. This proved to be optimistic. On the 1st of November 2006, Litvinenko was in London on business. He lived in North London, but he was in central London on business. Boris Berezovsky's office was in Mayfair, and he went to Itsu Sushi Bar in Piccadilly, to meet an Italian journalist, friend. Later on, in this Millennium Hotel, which you can see before you, he met a couple of Russian friends, as he saw them, former colleagues from the FSB. Unbeknown to Litvinenko, they had put some polonium, a radioactive chemical, into the teapot, and they got him to drink the tea. After Litvinenko had finished meeting his friends and drunk the tea, he went around the corner to see Boris Beresovsky, and went to various of the locations in London before heading home. Alexander Litvinenko died a few weeks later in a London hospital with no hair, and it soon became apparent, in fact it only became apparent a day or two before he died, after all the tests had been run, that they finally realised the poison that was killing him was polonium. And the reason they checked that so reluctantly and so late is because it's virtually unknown in the wild, and it can only be made in a nuclear reactor, therefore it had to have been made by a nuclear power, and the most obvious assumption after that is that it would be Russia. Polonium does have industrial applications, or at least theoretical ones, in making anti-static materials, it's a reliable source of alpha radiation for a laboratory, and it can be used uh, in space probes as well. However, the most common use for it is as a poison. Now, interestingly, although at the time, this seemed like a very sophisticated assassination, where polonium was brought into the UK surreptitiously and not discovered. It was introduced into a teapot, drunk by the victim, and then the two villains who administered this poison left the country, and the trail unravelled only months later when they were safely back in Russia. This starts to look like a professional situation, a professional attempt, but in fact it was the third try the two assassins had also brought polonium to the UK on the 16th of October and the 25th of October, and it was only on their third attempt that they managed to successfully meet Litvinenko and have him drink the tea. Now, a lot of this is available on the internet. There's a really great podcast done recently featuring the piano man from the Millennium Hotel, which you can find on the Sky News website. So I don't want to go into this in too much detail. If I was on the walk, I might go into a little bit more detail than this. But I think in the podcast situation, very welcome to go and check 
the details of this story yourself. So I thought I would focus instead on some details which I found out much later. Um, one of the things is that polonium is named after the country Poland, which is the home country of Marie Curie, and she was the person who discovered polonium in 1898. But also, something very interesting happened four months after Litvinenko died. In March 2007, a man called Paul Joyal was shot in Maryland, USA. Now, Joyal did not die. It's never been proven exactly who tried to kill him. But it's interesting that it happened just days after he blamed the Kremlin for the murder of Alexander Litvinenko. And he had strong ties to Russia, Joyal, and was known in the Russian expatriate community in Maryland. So, if you add all of this together, plus the evidence from Itsu Sushi, from Millennium Hotel, from the three British Airways planes which had to be decontaminated, and the fact that one of the, or at least one of the two assassins fell sick with polonium poisoning shortly after he returned to Russia, you have the inescapable fact that the Russian Secret Service successfully murdered a British citizen on British soil in broad daylight. And if that wasn't enough to persuade you that the Cold War has not ended, remember Sergei Skripal, Novichok, much more recently. Sergei Skripal and his daughter survived, but only just, and a British woman did die inadvertently in that attack. The Cold War is very much still hot. OK, so on that cheery note, we proceed through Grosvenor Square. If you walk straight through the gardens towards the large building that takes up the entire west side of the square, you will find that this is the former American embassy. There used to be flags out here. In one corner, probably on your left towards the south side of the square, you will see the statue of Ronald Reagan. This belongs to Britain and is not to be moved. Equally, because the structure of the building is listed, the eagle on the roof is not to be moved either. So they will remain in a few years after this has turned into a top luxury hotel. It's a building site at the moment, so spend no time here. Walk south into Mayfair. So the street that we're going to walk down is called South Audley Street, and it does indeed head south towards Curzon Street at the south side of Mayfair. About a third of the way down South Audley Street, on your right, is a gun shop, a famous gun shop, called Purdy, and it's on the corner of Mount Street. Now we normally stop on the opposite corner to Purdy. I always try and stop on the opposite side of the street because then you can see what we're looking at more clearly. If you're too close, you can't quite see it clearly enough. So I normally get people to walk down South Audley Street, cross over at the lights and stand outside the pub so that you are diagonally op so that you are diagonally so that you are diagonally opposite Purdy's gun shop. And the reason we stop at Purdy's gun shop is that it appears in John le Carré's book The Secret Pilgrim. Here is an extract now from The Secret Pilgrim. The situation is that MI6 have been tracking a foreign prince, a Middle Eastern prince, who perhaps might be slightly large, around Mayfair and making sure he doesn't cause a diplomatic incident. Here's John. Day two had been spent hanging around Mount Street while Fat Boy had himself measured for a pair of Purdy shotguns. First, precariously brandishing a tri-gun, that's a practice or test gun, around the premises, then throwing a tantrum when he discovered he would have to wait two years before they were ready. And then later on they're watching Fat Boy again from a van 
outside a shuttered whorehouse here in South Audley Street. The whorehouses of South Audley Street are not widely advertised and not obvious on this walk. But the interesting thing to me is that John le Carré, when he worked for MI5, worked in the building that you'll be seeing later on this walk, Leckenfield House in Curzon Street. So John's lunch times would have been spent himself hanging around South Audley Street and Curzon Street. And therefore many of the locations in his earlier books, and his perhaps most famous books, tend to be from Mayfair. More later. Now the reason I like Purdy's is because, yes, the guns are intricate and expensive and, and highly regarded, both as weapons for country shooting and uh, as works of art in terms of the fine metalwork on them and the, the woodwork on them. But they also do a nice range of clothes, wax jackets, hats and so on. And their shop is just great fun to look around. It's really old-fashioned and traditional and just everything that makes Mayfair great is exemplified by a visit to Purdy's gun shop. However, however, we are not going down South Audley Street. We have we have a date in Mount Street Gardens. So we are heading east along Mount Street, past all the shops and the fancy restaurants. And on the right, you will see an estate agents and a passage along the side of the estate agents, which takes you into Mount Street Gardens. This is sometimes known as St George's Gardens. And when you walk through, first of all, let me say it's even more of a favourite with me than Grosvenor Square Gardens because it's smaller it's more intimate, it's sort of L-shaped, which means you get little hidey corners here, but also because it is famous for KGB activity. And you will see straight away in St George's Gardens there are a high number of benches, wooden benches, many of which are new and would not have been there during the Cold War. However, many of them were there during the Cold War. And I've got information that, and I quote, the second bench on the right was used as a KGB signalling system to communicate with spies. Now, there are so many benches now that it's difficult to understand the second bench on the right, but I believe it's one of the benches uh, around in the centre of the gardens, not the ones around the edge on the straight path, not near the fountain. Uh, beyond that, I can't be sure. But what this does allow me to explain is the first part of a dead letterbox system, or a dead drop. Now, the good thing about the dead letterbox is that it allows a spy to pass information, typically documents, to an agent without ever seeing the agent and therefore without having to synchronise their movements in any great precision. So the idea is that you agree a location that's hidden behind a brick or under a bench and you put the documents behind the brick at the set time and then within an hour or two the person goes and collects them and then if you really want to you can go back later on and check that they've gone. This is great until the enemy discovers the location. And then all they have to do is stake out the location for a few weeks and catch whoever is found there depositing documents or collecting documents. So this was adapted with a system of chalk marks used to signal when the coast was clear. And that's where the benches come in. So we don't know, or I don't know exactly where the, the hidden brick or the maybe it was in the fountain, under the fountain, somewhere else in the gardens, probably not in these gardens at all, but the bench was for the first chalk mark. So the person who had a document to transfer would put a chalk mark on the back of the bench. His friend would then come along later and check the chalk mark is there, which means that there is something to collect. We then proceed to the hidden location somewhere else. We collect the document 
and then we need to signal that the document has been cleared. And there is a lamp post on South Audley Street, which we'll travel to in a second, which was used for this second signal to show that the document had been cleared from the dead letter box. And then afterwards, each person would rub off the chalk mark and would be back to the beginning. So what this does is it produces at least three locations. It's the, the bench, the dead letter box itself, and the lamp post allows you to check and double check and triple check that the coast is clear before, during and after the drop. This takes a lot of time, but it's virtually foolproof. It's very unlikely that you would have been followed to all three locations without noticing that you've been followed. And of course, if necessary, you can add further steps along the chain, depending on how secret the document might be. I really like these gardens. The bench was definitely used by the KGB. We have this from people who have been captured or been naturalised, like Litvinenko was, to become British citizens later on. We will now leave the gardens back towards South Audley Street in the west. So you'll go past the Mayfair Library and take a left onto South Audley Street. And the lamppost is harder to find now. It's outside number two, Audley Square. Now, Audley Square is not a square, and it's been boarded up for some years because there's a massive redevelopment project going on behind some boarded up areas. But it is next to the Women's Social Club, very famously one of the few social clubs exclusively for women. And you should find it fairly easily, but this is one that it's very hard to describe, so take a look on Google Maps. When we get to the lamppost, again, there would be a chalk mark in blue or white, just above head height, uh, and somebody would walk past, brush past, mark the lamppost, and there was a figure of eight on the lamppost, and it would be just below there. Then later on, the chalk mark is removed, it's checked, triple checked, and then they go back and remove the chalk mark from the bench, and that resets the system. So this was laborious, it was difficult, but it was virtually foolproof. Typically, the paperwork would have been stolen from one of the many embassies in this area. There are very many in, in Mayfair, Park Lane, Curzon Street, even today, and there perhaps were even more back then. So it was very easy to steal a document, mark the lamppost, mark the bench, take it to the dead letter drop, leave it there for a couple of hours, check it's gone, and then back to work after lunch or in the next morning. So in this first part of the Mayfair Cold War walk, we started in Grosvenor Square Gardens, we saw the old American embassy, we saw Purdy's gun shop, and we saw Mount Street Gardens and the lamppost on South Audley Street. In the next part, we'll be looking at the headquarters of MI5 at the time, Leckenfield House, Shepherd Market and a very famous bookshop called Haywood Hill. Now for a long time I used to take a detour down one of the side streets out to the Egyptian embassy where I talked about the five KGB traitors, Burgess and McLean, Kim Philby, Anthony Blunt and the fifth man John Cairncross. But there is an earlier Spies of London episode called Stalin's Englishman about Guy Burgess and friends. So I won't cover that in too much detail here, and it has nothing to do with the Egyptian embassy. But if you do like embassies, or if you have a particular relationship with Egypt, it's worth taking a quick look down the side street marked on Google Maps. And then as you come back, you'll be going past the Qatar embassy as well. I used to set this up as a game for people where I said, stop when you get to the Qatar embassy, and everybody always walked past it. And the reason for making this point is that the smaller the country or the the weaker the relationship with Britain, or the newer the relationship with Britain, the smaller the embassy tends to be. So North Korea famously is a semi-detached house in Surrey somewhere. Qatar is quite grand, but neither Qatar or Egypt are anything close to the American or Saudi Arabian embassies, and it's particularly the Saudi one 
which I find most fascinating. So if you do like the Cambridge Spies, the Cambridge Five, please do look at the earlier episode in Spies of London, which covers them all in great detail. So we come to the favourite stretch for me on this walk. As you come down to the end of South Audley Street, the T-junction is onto Curzon Street. Turn left onto Curzon Street and very soon you will see a nice looking but fairly nondescript office building and over the main entrance you will see the sign for Leckenfield House. Now, I was always very anxious about stopping outside the front door here, especially as during office hours this is quite a busy entrance. I used to take people down the side of the building onto Chesterfield Gardens and there you can quite easily touch the stonework that used to be the headquarters of MI5. It was where David Cornwell, John le Carré used to work, Guy Liddell and many other famous names including Thomas Harris more later. So the great thing about Leckenfield House is the history of the spy writers John Bingham, John le Carré have all worked there. So it's not much of a leap to imagine that their early works, you know, the spies that that were in those books were based effectively in Leckenfield House. It's why a lot of early John le Carrier books have locations around Curzon Street and South Audley Street in Mayfair. And it makes it really dramatic for me, especially on the walk, to imagine these guys, you know, at the time, just normal agents. Although John Bingham, I think, carried on his career as a writer. And that's how John le Carrier knew him. People say that John Bingham is the basis for George Smiley. But they were fairly normal agents at the time, working for the British government in an office in London. Nothing too exotic about it. And looking at the building today, there's absolutely nothing exotic about it. It's a really nice building, but it's not as grand as Thames House, the current headquarters. And it's not on the scale of Vauxhall Cross, the MI6 headquarters either. On my Westminster walk, we look at the new MI6 building, which was opened in 94, and compare it to the old one, Broadway, where John le Carre worked later on in his career. And they are vastly different in scale and scope. I actually prefer the old ones, but that's a personal preference. So the other good thing about Leckenfield House is it's where MI5 was based when Spycatcher, the author of Spycatcher, Peter Wright, was suspicious of his boss, Hollis and he thought that Hollis was a Russian spy. Although Peter Wright wrote the book with a grudge against MI5, effectively, there was some disagreement over pensions and payouts at the end of his career. And the book has largely been discredited. It was very famous in the 80s because it was banned. But it was not banned in Australia. It got published there. Copies leaked over here. I've read it. It's a riveting read. It's a fascinating book. But it is the book of somebody who is absolutely obsessed with finding moles and spies behind every cupboard. Although it would be easy to blame Peter Wright and say, you know, he was a fantasist. I I actually honestly believe that the environment that these people work in, especially in these years, when there were really moles and traitors around, Kim Philby working at Leckenfield House too, these people were real. They were traitors, they did exist, and they were trying to work against Britain and America. And of course, once you've got five moles, you think, well, why wasn't there six or seven or eight or nine? And you start looking for them. And then you think everybody's suspicious. And this is exactly why the traitor, why the mole is so pervasive, why it's so attractive in culture, in in books and films. Because the traitor, the liar, is your friend, your colleague, the person next door, the boss, the wife, the boyfriend. The traitor is everybody. 
The traitor is normal and the traitor goes to lengths to show how normal they are. And it becomes, it can become a paranoid fantasy. And Peter Wright definitely fell into that camp and there were others too. He was only famous because he wrote about it and because the book got banned. You can look at Leckenfield House on the internet, you can compare it to Thames House, the new MI5 headquarters. And it's quite clear that today's MI5 is significantly bigger than the MI5 we're talking about here. If you were standing where I stand on this walk, you were on the corner of Curzon Street and Chesterfield Gardens. And at number six Chesterfield Gardens, you would be looking at the house of Thomas Harris. Now, Thomas Harris is a fascinating character. He's not British, but he was involved in Operation Fortitude and other double cross episodes. His job, with many others, was to pretend to the Germans that D-Day was going to happen near Calais and not in Normandy. This was a very intricate, very detailed disinformation campaign, which was ultimately successful and helped to ensure the success of D-Day and the Normandy landings. Thomas Harris was half British, half Spanish. Now, interestingly, he used to host drinks evenings for Philby, Burgess, Blunt, and who else? Anurin Bevan, one of the politicians of the time. Also, Victor Rothschild, Guy Little and Dick White, later himself the head of MI5 and MI6. I seem to remember that's unique, that only one person has been the head of both services. This group was known as the Chesterfield Gardens Mafia because it was so close to the office. Perhaps that's why Thomas Harris rented the house. It's a very large, grand house. It's a terrace, but it's got an ornate entranceway. And today they're worth millions and millions of pounds. Back then they would have been less expensive, but it does show that these guys had money. Victor Rothschild, of course, famous, part of the Rothschild dynasty. These people were either rich themselves or senior politicians, influential in the British civil service, aristocrats, sons of aristocrats. Philby's father went to Westminster School, as did Philby himself. They were very well-to-do, well-heeled, high-class British men from the establishment. And Chesterfield Gardens is absolutely, in the heart of Mayfair, an establishment property. I love walking down Chesterfield Gardens. There's always a Ferrari or a Lamborghini outside. I think very few of these occupants would know about the history of this house and Thomas Harris. Thomas Harris died a violent death. A lot of the spies went off the rails. Burgess was a drunk. Philby himself suffered with immense pressures and stresses. Many of them died before their time. So we've had Chesterfield Gardens, we've had Leckenfield House. And after Leckenfield House, if you come back out onto Curzon Street and walk down Curzon Street to the Curzon Cinema, cross over so that you're standing outside the cinema and turn around so that you're looking at what looks like a, a, a Middle Eastern palace, you are looking at a Middle Eastern palace, the embassy of Saudi Arabia. It's the grandest of all in Mayfair, in my eyes, much grander even than the old American embassy. It's got a U in and out drive. It's always got armed police on the gates and sometimes opposite because they rent offices opposite as well, near the cinema. It is highly guarded by the Saudis, by the British police, and it's very grand. You can stand on the corner of the Curzon Cinema, look into the embassy, and they have open days there, and you can go around and take a look. When I was starting this walk, the Saudis had not been naughty for a number of years, and now, of course, we have the murder of Khashoggi, we have other suspicious activities. We have the shakedown in the hotel. There's a real power struggle going on in Saudi, perhaps partially because of the loss of oil revenue, the change in dynasty, perhaps because these things ebb and flow. Anyway, Saudi is in the news again at the moment. It's worthwhile taking that in, thinking about that, 
and then turning back to the Curzon Cinema. And this is the point where I sometimes talk about Ian Fleming. I do have a book on Ian Fleming by Andrew Lysett, which I'm going to be reviewing in a future episode, so I won't say too much about him. But it's interesting to me that the Curzon Cinema, the Bond film, and all the other films that have been shown here, is right in the heart of diplomatic Mayfair. Right in the heart of the Cold War. Now, if you walk down the side street with the cinema behind you, you will eventually come to a blue plaque up on the left. I think it's blue, it could be green. But it's the sign for Shepherd Market, and it shows that this is a very old part of Mayfair. But not as old as you might think. If you walk into Shepherd Market, I normally cross over in between the restaurants by the post box, and you can walk through restaurants where they're set out in the courtyard, in the, in the corridor there, very much like a European city where they're expecting good weather, there's awnings and canopies and so on. And you walk straight ahead, eventually you'll come to a phone box. And if you stop at the phone box, you can sort of spin around and take a look at the old market buildings. It was an indoor market, not an outdoor market. And the market stalls happened inside the central rectangular building. It's a very large warehouse type building. And why are we stopping in Shepherd Market? Well, it has a long history. Patrick Lee Fermer, the famous SOE agent, had a flat here when he came to London. Marcus Pym, in John le Carre's A Perfect Spy, had a flat here. Geoffrey Archer met a prostitute here, the one he subsequently lied about and went to prison over. And it was the subject of a famous book and film at the time, The Green Hat, by Michael Arlen. And I'll be reading from The Green Hat just so you can get a flavour of Shepherd Market, especially as you're not standing there necessarily today while you listen to this. And the reason Shepherd Market is so crucial to Mayfair is because it's the site of the Mayfair. Yes, London's fair in May, on May Day, the, with the Maypole and the Morris Dancers and the May Queen. London's Mayfair took place in Shepherd Market before the market was here in the 1680s under James II. So Shepherd Market originally is where it... Shepherd Market originally... Shepherd Market, as it was originally, gave its name Mayfair to the region. Later on, Edward Shepherd came along in the mid-1700s and built the market buildings and set it up as a market. Michael Arlen, the writer himself, lived opposite the grapes, which you will see in a few minutes as we walk towards Curzon Street again. Mama Cass from the Mamas and Papas and Keith Moon both died here. So to help you imagine Shepherd Market, if you're not actually walking this route, I thought a few sentences from page three of the green hat will be interesting and michael arlen states shepherd market is a collection of lively odors bounded on the north side by curzon street on the south side by piccadilly and on the west side by hartford street on the east side by half moon street and rejoices therefore in the polite direction of mayfair as you will see printed on the notepaper of any of its residents a flower shop which was opened in our lane lived for only six months and that in spite of the gardenia gallantly affected by the old nobleman from Curzon Street every day. I, after having lived here six years, am by the grace of God leaving on the morrow. So I think Michael Arlen makes Mayfair sound beautiful. Uh, it's in an absolutely prime location. There's a florist, there's bars and restaurants. It's a sociable place. But it wouldn't have been quite as upmarket as it is now, and it's not upmarket now. Uh, relative to Mayfair, it's definitely much more accessible. Uh, perhaps a, a working class lone bachelor looking to be a spy wouldn't be able to afford a, a flat here now, 
wouldn't be able to afford to rent a flat here now. But it's definitely not got the grandeur of the rest of Mayfair. But even then, the the novelist, the the narrator here, is happy to be leaving Mayfair, happy to be leaving Shepherd Market. And there is something sinister about the place. It's a place for social meeting and interaction, but also for spying, depression. And a lot of the spooks would debrief their spies and agents in rooms above Shepherd Market. Social on the ground floor, sinister upstairs. And I think that's how I like to think of it. We will be walking past the grapes, heading up towards Hayward Hill and Trumpers Barbers, where there is a really good John le Carre story to come. And then the walk proceeds past Fleming's Hotel and back down to Green Park Station. You will now walk east along the main footpath through Shepherd Market and you will soon see the Grapes pub up on the left. Take a left at the Grapes, walking north now back to Curzon Street. On your left you will see Mag's Brothers, the rare bookshop. Now I'd like you to stop outside Mag's Brothers and look across the road, across Curzon Street. You will see Haywood Hill on your left and G.O.F. Trump the Barbers on your right. The reason for stopping here is that I believe this must be where John le Carre stopped when he was thinking of the scene in Tinker Tailor, Soldier Spy, when George Smiley meets Roddy Martindale. George Smiley is clearly le Carre's best-known character. He was played by Alec Guinness in the TV series in the 70s and by Gary Oldman in the recent feature film. Roddy Martindale is the drunk who likes a long lunch and is not exactly George Smiley's normal cup of tea and they bump into each other quite accidentally so Smiley is on his way to Haywood Hill bookshop to sell an old Grimmelshausen German novel in German I think it's the first edition the reason he's doing this is that his divorce from Anne Lady Anne Smiley is taking a long time and she seems to have control of the bank accounts so his only access to ready cash is to start selling off his rare book collection. So he has walked from Bywater Street in Chelsea, his home, through the rain, book under his arm, and he's about to arrive at Haywood Hill. So I believe he would have either emerged from the archway where you now stand, or probably from along Curzon Street from the west. And he's about to cross over towards Haywood Hill to go in. And Roddy comes out of Trumpers, having had his hair cut. Probably had a few bottles of wine already. He shouts at George. They have a conversation. Roddy encourages George off to a nearby restaurant, so that could well have been in Shepherd Market behind you, one of the many restaurants that you've seen there. They have a long lunch that goes off into the evening, and George Smiley accidentally leaves the rare book in the restaurant, and he doesn't collect it until the end of the book. He never made it to Haywood Hill that day, and the rest is history, as they say. He goes on the mole hunt. The rest of the book is quite clearly based on Kim Philby. So, George never made it into Haywood Hill. Haywood Hill is famous for many reasons. You might be able to see the blue plaque, which shows that Nancy Mitford worked there. One of the famous Mitford sisters, a famous novelist, and of course the sister of Unity, who had a relationship with Adolf Hitler, and the sister of Diana, who married Oswald Mosley. So Haywood Hill has its own literary backstory there, its Cold War and indeed World War II backstory, and it has a secret place, a special place, in the stories of John le Carré. I suspect John le Carré had his haircut at Trumpers and bought a few books in Haywood Hill when he was working at Leckenfield House just along the road. This is my favourite spot on the walk. We're nearly at the end now. There's only one official stop left. I like it because I can quite easily imagine the, the young John le Carré building up his archive of scenes and locations ready for his first book. Or Indeed, Tinker Taylor was well into his career. 
But Grimmelshausen, Trumpers, Hayward Hill, these places, Purdy's, appear in many of his works. So take a last look at Hayward Hill. Take a look through the window at Max Brothers, which has some really rare and very valuable items in there. And then walk along Curzon Street to the east and take a right down Half Moon Street. Now you'll walk almost to the end of Half Moon Street, certainly beyond halfway. You will walk past the Hilton, keep on the right side, the west side of the street, so that you can see the Flemings Hotel clearly. There has often been a lot of building work going on here. It's still, uh, as the boundary of Shepherd Market, is still a very highly sought-after location. You'll see it's a fairly quiet street, even though you can see Piccadilly running along the end at the south. So it's being redeveloped, but Fleming's Hotel has been here for very many years. It's nothing to do with Ian Fleming. It's famous in espionage circles. The hotel is very nice. We actually did the photo shoot uh, in the bar of that hotel for the first set of spy walks that I did with Airbnb. And it's a really nice bar. It's a basement bar and it's called Manetta's. These are all very interesting things because a basement bar has no windows and therefore it was used by SOE people like Vera Atkins to meet her spies, her agents and debrief them uh, before they perhaps went off for a longer meeting in one of the flats and offices around Shepherd Market. So Manetta's was attractive because it had no windows. But what I found when we were doing the photo shoot for the spy walks was it has no phone reception either. So we had to keep going outside to get the photographer's cell signal so that we can talk to him. And so I find it interesting that there's a bar with no windows and no cell phone signal where you can meet spies right in the middle of London, just off Piccadilly. Fleming's Hotel is also interesting because it was the home of Bertie Wooster and Agatha Christie has connections to the hotel as well. They believe it is the model for Bertram's Hotel in Agatha Christie, although other hotels claim that credit as well. The likelihood is that as she did stay here when she was in London quite often, that at least some elements of this hotel that you're looking at today have made it into her stories as part of Bertram's. Although she is not a spy writer as such, you do find a crossover between mystery stories and spying. A lot of spy novels are actually mystery novels that happen to have some espionage content. If you believe anything on Wikipedia, you will know that Bertram's Hotel is popularly believed to have been inspired by Brown's Hotel. However, it's the Oxford Dictionary of National Biography that suggests Fleming's, because Agatha Christie was known to stay at Fleming's. Fleming's is one of my favourite hotels in this area because it's so little known. It's kind of, you have to be in a certain group of people to really know about it. They might disagree. It's been there for over 100 years. I think it's been on this site since it opened in 1851. It certainly is an old enough building and it looks like it could well have been. And they really play up on their spy connections. The bar is lovely. It's a really nice place to finish the walk. What we never did on the Airbnb walk was actually going for a drink because the cocktails are a little expensive. But if you have the budget, if you're here traveling to the UK on a holiday, it's definitely worth going in and getting a beer or a cocktail in Manetta's bar in the basement of Fleming's. Before I had my SOE World War II walk, I also used to talk here about Christina Scarbeck because she was one of the SOE agents that Vera Atkins would have run and probably met in this hotel. And the wonderful biography of Christina by Claire Molly is definitely worth a read. I will be reviewing that book, The Spy Who Loved by Claire Molly, in a future episode of Spies of London. But I mention it because this whole walk, and indeed most of my walks, 
are about a time, a period of time, when all the spies and agents were men. But talking about SOE is a chance to talk about the women, because most of the men who were able to were fighting in the regular army, navy and royal air force in the Second World War. And so the women got left behind. They were meant to be making tanks and missiles, but some of them, especially the foreign women, the people who had left France, Eastern Europe, in extremely dangerous circumstances, wanted to get home. And they wanted to get home as quickly as possible, and they didn't want to be planting potatoes. And people like Christina Scarbeck, who was almost an Olympic-level skier, was an absolute modern-day hero. Uh, She put herself in danger many times. And many of Vera Atkins' agents were women. Many of them were executed by the Germans when they were captured. There is an SOE memorial in Lambeth, and we might cover that in the forthcoming City of London walk. Flemings has that part in in the history. It's not near the SOE offices, but it was used by Vera and others. And it does give me a chance to mention that, particularly during the war, not so much afterwards, but during the war, was the first time when women were put into these non-uniformed, dangerous situations. Pretty much of their own free will in many cases, they felt like they had a duty to liberate their own countries. But there were also British women who put themselves forward as well, who didn't want to do a safe factory job. The story of Christina in particular is worth a look. Christina died a violent death in London after the war, and I think that it's worth remembering people like Thomas Harris, who as well, who also died a violent death. These people sought out danger, partly because they were drawn to the danger, but also to help everybody else and to help win the war. So on that happy note, I wish you good morning, good afternoon, enjoy the rest of your day. Make your way south to Green Park Station if you are doing this walk for real and you will find the Jubilee line waiting for you or there are many, many buses that run along Piccadilly to all directions. This walk is freely available as a podcast. However, you can also go to spiesoflondon.uk to see more articles and other information and to sign up for the newsletter and free content. I am available for hire for private groups, for bachelor and bachelorette parties, stag and hen, birthdays, and any other special occasion. People are less nervous when they're in a group of friends that they know, and they ask more questions. And that's one thing I'm missing on these podcasts is the interaction, the questions. So if you go along to Spies of London and sign up, I will figure out a way that you can ask your questions about the topics on this walk, and I can answer them really easily. 